Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where I take a deep dive into an obscure topic from history and tell you all about what I find. I am your host, Kelvin. I use he, him pronouns. And joining me again are my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-hosts. Introduce yourselves. I'm Jamie, she, her pronouns. I'm Laura, she, her pronouns. Welcome back, you guys. Hopefully y'all are ready to get into some niche history, because that's the name of the game. So if y'all are ready, let's dive down the rabbit hole. Imagine that a cargo has to your island, you know, either a great white ship or an aeroplane. Why has it come to these white-faced people? They've done nothing to deserve it. They don't make them themselves, you can see that. What's more, they put up great masts with wires on the top, and then they dress up people in, in similar uniforms and march them up and down in a senseless, useless way. They certainly aren't doing any good. And then it dawns on you. This is the secret. The white people are doing this as a sort of ritual designed to make the gods send the goods to them, the, the cargo. Therefore, if you want the cargo, you yourself must do these extraordinary things. Today is going to be an interesting episode from an anthropological perspective. We are going to be discussing a fairly unique phenomena that occurred in the Pacific Islands after World War II. And that phenomena is known commonly as cargo cults. I don't know if y'all have ever heard or that phrase used before. I haven't. Well, cargo cults are a classification of religious practices that certain groups of indigenous Pacific Islanders developed after coming into contact with the material wealth of technology that the war brought into the region that had previously not been even known about. And so indigenous people on some of these islands attached a sort of religiosity to this sudden influx of goods, and that kind of developed in coordination and combination with some other stuff that was already going on on the islands. And so I'm not going to really use the word cult past this point in the episode because of the negative or pejorative connotation that the word has in modern parlance of, you know, Jonestown and stuff like that. So... Uh, I'm going to call them cargo faiths, and on top of that, I want to emphasize that what I've learned about through classes and research and stuff is I'm going to do my best to relay the correct information, but I am by no means an expert on this topic. I'm not an anthropologist, and so uh, if I... <laughs> misrepresent something in advance very sorry um uh, and the last little bit of 
forewarning I'm going to do is that given the nature of this topic, certain groups of people would take the following information and use it to uh, advance notions of like intellectual superiority of certain groups of people. And we're just gonna cut that nip it in the bud right now. So I don't want listeners thinking that the people I'm about to talk about are, are primitive or intellectually inferior because of these beliefs. It's just an interesting thing. And so we're just going to do our best to keep the language neutral and inoffensive on my part and do some good history explaining. And so with all of that out of the way, I'm gonna give you all a brief history of this region and then we'll go into the birth and development of these cargo faiths. So, like I said, we're going to be focusing on a group of islands in Oceania. And Oceania technically is not a continent, but a geographic region. Continents are based on tectonic plates and large continuous blocks of land. The Pacific Islands are almost by definition neither of those things. <laughs> and nor are they close enough to a landmass to be grouped in with any other continent. And so they are kind of looped together in with Australia and New Zealand to make Oceania. And outside of Australia, Oceania is separated into three distinct regions based on cultural, ethnic, and linguistic groupings. First group is Melanesia, which is the collection of islands just northeast of Australia from the island of New Guinea to Fiji. And then north of Melanesia and east of the Philippines is Micronesia. And that includes the Mariana Islands, Guam, Marshall Islands, Kiribati. And then the last group is Polynesia, which is probably the most people have heard about because it is the largest and it forms a massive triangle in the Pacific Ocean stretching from Hawaii to Aotearoa or in English, it's New Zealand. And then the final corner of that triangle is Rapa Nui, or Easter Island. Easter Island. And so all of these places have very interesting histories and cultures in it of themselves, but we are going to be focusing on Melanesia, specifically the island nation of Vanuatu. Vanuatu was first inhabited by Melanesians 3,000 years ago, so relatively recent in the grand scheme of things. Not much is known in the way of specifics before the Europeans arrived because writing had not yet been invented, but Europeans first arrived in 1606 with Portuguese explorers. The first guy that landed there he was a Portuguese explorer working for Spain named Pedro Fernandes de Quieros. And he landed on a couple of islands, named a couple of them. 
and he believed that he was nearing the mythical land of Terra Australis, which is something we mentioned in a previous episode. Um, but he didn't stay long, and Europeans, being on the opposite side of the world, weren't necessarily very interested in doing a whole lot of exploration there. They just wanted the spices that came from there. And so it wasn't until 1768 that more Europeans arrived, um, this time being the French. And then later, Captain Cook would arrive, visit the islands, and he named them the New Hebrides, which the Old Hebrides are the island chain on top of Scotland. And so, yeah, the same. You just name everything after Europe. That's why you got New <laughs> Zealand yeah. and all that stuff. But the name of the New Hebrides would stick around until the 1980s. Yeah, like I said, it being on the complete opposite side of the world from Europe, content contact would remain infrequent um, until the whaling industry began stopping by in the 1800s. And then shortly after them, Christian missionaries soon followed, and there were mixed results with that in how they interacted with the indigenous people. So a large percentage of the indigenous people of Vanuatu, who are known as the Ni Vanuatu, were particularly impacted by the practice known as blackbirding during the late 1800s. So basically, by the 1860s, slavery had pretty much been abolished in most places. But of course, you still have economies that are structured to run on large amounts of people doing hard labor. And so after slavery was abandoned in the British Empire in places like Australia, which still had these large plantations, they would basically kidnap people from surrounding little islands and transport them far away to where they had no real desire of, or they had no, maybe not desire, but no means of getting back to their homes, really. And so they would be kind of forced to agree to whatever payment plan they would be offered, which would not be a lot. Not like indentured servitude or whatever it's called? Kind of, but they technically were paid, but with indentured servitude, you are choosing to sell yourself into this um, agreement. With blackbirding, you are kidnapped. And so it's very icky. Yeah. But um, it's estimated that about half of the adult male population of Vanuatu was caught up in this practice. Wow. That's a lot of people. And so that was the main first large contact and interaction with Europeans that a lot of these islanders have. As you can tell, it was not a very positive one. Nope. 
and as the century progressed, these plantations would spread and be set up on more and more islands, not to the same scale because you don't have the space on an island to set up super large plantations, but once you set it up there, that's basically all you can set up there. So there was, even though European territories like France and Britain would claim these islands, there really wasn't any sort of trying to colonize them in the sense of trying to send people there and build up European-like societies in a foreign land. It's purely economical extracting wealth and products. And so, like I said, both France and Britain would make claims over the territory, and by 1906, the European population of the island were 401 French and 228 British people in Vanuatu. And that same year, 1906, Britain and France came together and established the Anglo-French condominium to govern the islands under joint rule. Basically, depending on whose citizenship you belong to, that was your laws that you followed. And because there's not that many of them, it doesn't really matter. How'd that work out? Well, the Nivanuatu were barred from becoming citizens of either nation, and so it did not work out well for them. As you can expect from not having the rights of a citizen of a nation, there was a lot of persecution and exploitation and more and more bad stuff. And all this time, they are continuing the evangelical efforts of missionaries in the region trying to civilize, with big air quotes, these people who culturally are very different from what Europeans would consider normal. So this was kind of the status of how things worked until World War II started. Of course, France quickly fell to Nazi Germany in 1940, which basically left the islands under British control. And then in 1941, Japan began expanding and took over much of Melanesia and then attacked Pearl Harbor, causing the United States to join the war. And the islands of Vanuatu were at the front lines of the Japanese advance. And so, pretty much immediately, Australian troops were stationed on the island, and by mid-1942, American troops joined them as well. They established a couple of bases on the islands, complete with airstrips, and at its height, over 50,000 troops were stationed there, who would go on to participate in the Solomon Islands campaign and the famous Battle of Guadalcanal. Well, these 50,000 troops outnumbered the total population of the islands, which before was about 40,000. One of these allied bases on the islands was the second largest military institution for the allies in the entire Pacific. Just to give you an idea of just how massive and quickly all these people ended up at the same spot, 
who probably had never even heard of this place beforehand. And you're living on an island in the middle of the Pacific just minding your own business, and all of a sudden, 50,000 white people come out of nowhere, oh, literally dropping from the sky. Oh my God. You know, it's kind of chaotic, as you can say. Kind have of. they ever, like, seen, like, planes and stuff before? Like, have they ever flown overhead? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was some traffic, but again, it's... But not people coming you know, from it, the sky. You know, planes had only been around for 20-ish years by that point, really. Oh, yeah. So, not really. And while they might have heard of these places existing beforehand... You know, they would have never really had any real interaction beforehand. Thousands of the Ni Vanuatu assisted the Allies by forming both the New Hebrides Defense Force and the Vanuatu Labor Corps. The Labor Corps members constructed airfields, unloaded cargo vessels, worked on mosquito eradication projects because... People in America don't like mosquitoes. I mean, yeah. I imagine almost nobody likes mosquitoes, but... Spiders do. Uh, if you're not used to the diseases, you know, that can be an issue. But uh, members of the Labor Corps served a three-month stint with only one day off every two weeks. Wow. Oh, my God. And uh, they were paid 25 cents a day. Is that good for the time? Like, was it was about seven fifty a month, and these wages were kept intentionally low in order to prevent post-war wage inflation, because the British were like, you can't pay them too well, because then once you leave, we'll have to continue paying them well, oh, and we can't no. do that. No, we didn't do that. Sounds like the perfect situation. Um. So yeah, it's undeniable that some level of racism was mixed into it but they will say it was economic reasons of course yeah of course and so at its height around 10,000 Ni Vanuatu served and while none of its members died in combat work-related accidents and death from disease and poor working conditions were very common and like I said you're doing basically everything to you're running the Allied war machine infrastructure to get these large battles in place. And the largest of these battles was the Battle of Guadalcanal, which began in August of 1942 and lasted until February of 43. And after this battle, the Allies began their strategy of island hopping through the Solomon Islands over the next couple of years. And as this happened, the front lines of the war moved further and further away from the islands of Vanuatu. And so Vanuatu bases became less and less important. And they quickly shifted to a supporting role throughout the rest of the war, which ended in 1945. And almost as suddenly as they came, the American forces left the islands. Um, and they, like, it was so quickly that they left most of the supplies that they didn't want to take home on the islands, or they just dumped them in the ocean if wow. you don't want to take it with you. Just leave it to the locals. 
Yeah, and so... I mean, you're losing the money that you spent on it anyways. Might as well let someone else use it. Be nice. Mm, I mean, it's... Was, you have to remember, it was lowest bidder. No. <laughs> they, yeah, they spent a lot of money, but comparatively, not really. And mm. what? it's all military gear, so there's no war going on. You can't, you know... You don't need bullets <laughs> if true, you don't I got guess. guns. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, but yeah, so let's think about this from the perspective of a Nivanuatu person. Uh, like I said, you're just living your life in an island, small world. Uh, you have much had much contact with white people outside of the random missionary who comes by or a plantation owner. And then out of nowhere... One day, literally thousands upon thousands of people flood into your home, bringing with them all these fantastic and powerful technologies that they had never seen before or even could have possibly dreamed of. You spend a next couple of years with them, and then they just leave, and they left all their stuff behind. So you got to be like, what the hell? <laughs> what the hell just happened? <laughs> a crazy couple of years. Well, some people looked at this situation and they ascribed some religious or spiritual notion onto it because, like, people came from across the sea and brought gifts that dramatically improved the material well-being of your people and then just disappeared. So, and also your islands were the center of world attention like you were important for first time in the grand history of things you know mm -hmm. or so it seemed and they brought all these things with them and it wasn't just you know the cargo that was spiritual it was the social connections that they had formed you know this cultural self-confidence and that sort of thing and uh yeah, and so once they left, you know, you question how do you go back to the good old days? You know, how do you keep having all this stuff that you now suddenly have? How do you keep being important? And these questions kind of made an impression on and merged with some of the already developing religious movements that sought to rebuild the traditional Nivanuatu way of life that had been kind of obliterated by missionaries and going in there trying to assimilate them to European standards. And they, so yeah, trying to protect the perceived collapse that was brought on by colonization while also incorporating this cargo mixed together and developed probably dozens of similar movements that collectively get categorized as cargo faiths. And so I'm going to discuss more deeply the two most famous and longest lasting ones, the ones that still last today, uh, both of which developed on the island of Tana, which is where the largest of the American bases was located and thus had the most direct contact and influence. 
And so the first movement that we're going to discuss and probably the most famous is known as the John Frum movement. And according to believers, uh, in 1940, a spirit named John Frum came to the people of Tana and told them two things. One, America was their best friend and they were on the way. And two, the people of Tana should return to the custom way of life. Custom in this context is the traditional indigenous dances, rituals, spiritual ceremonies that the missionaries have previously banned. Together is known as custom. Probably the most important part of custom is the practice of drinking kava. Now, kava is the root of a plant that, when processed, is turned into a beverage that has a tranquilizing effect. So, makes you trip balls. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> um, Interesting. And whenever I say processing, that means a lot of chewing and oh, spitting no. it out. And you drink it very quickly. As you can imagine, because it probably doesn't taste too good. Well, they can't drink it if they chewed it up. It's just... They chew it into a pulp, and they let it ferment a little bit. Oh. Ew. But, drugs, man. So, yeah. when they're chewing it, does it have that effect? Or is it after it's been fermented? It has to be processed, yeah. Okay. So, who are the chewers? <laughs> I mean, paid. you know, not, I mean, not really get paid. Money's not really a thing. Oh, true, yeah. But yeah, it's just the most important is the ritual of drinking kava and then kind of meditating on your experiences, I guess. But um, yeah, so people on the island began turning back to custom in such a large way that it was disruptive to the government-sponsored missionaries. Um, so disruptive that several leaders of the John Frum movement were imprisoned. And then World War II happened, and John Frum's prophecy came true. The Americans arrived. And so this validated their belief in the power of custom and the belief that there existed a special bond between the people of America and the new Vanuatu. After the Americans left at the end of the war... Followers of the movement incorporated some new rituals into custom ceremonies in order to symbolize this bond with the United States and prepare for John Frum to return from America with the cargo. Air quotes on cargo. The practices include ceremonially raising the American flag, the building of shrines that can resemble the shape of airplanes, the wearing of military uniforms, and imitating army marches complete with bamboo rifles. And every year on February 15th, they would they still do celebrate John Frum Day on the island of Tana. It's my birthday. Oh. <laughs> Happy John from Day. Um, and so, as you you know, the saying is, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, that's 
yeah, that's definitely what they're going for with this thing. These ritualized, uh, mock, well, not mocking, but mimicking uh, American troops in this kind of unique way uh, really piqued Western interests in the followers of John Frum in the 1960s. And it was during this period that a lot of misconceptions about the movement developed such that they like worship planes or whatever, which isn't true. It's like I said, it's ritualizing and symbolizing things. But yeah, the followers continue to this day, believing that by practicing custom and keeping their bond strong with America, their culture will survive into moder modernity. And John Frum will one day return and bring America to help the island. Um, in the 1990s, the total population of believers was around 5,000. Oh, that's a lot. I was expecting like 200 or something like that. No, mm -hmm. it's, it's on multiple islands, but, you know. Um, and since then, the total population has declined steadily as younger generations are less likely to continue with the beliefs, um, which is a very common occurrence. They don't see the value in maintaining the traditions in the same way as the older generations do. But uh, like any other religious group, you know, outside of those main core beliefs, there is some variety with different islands, different tribes or whatever. For example, there's one group that instead of John that believes instead of the spirit being named John from, they believe the spirit's name is Tom Navy. Um, another group is associated with an actual political party in Vanuatu called Nagriamel. Um, and like the president of the party claims to be the president of the movement but you have a lot of people claiming to be the leaders of the movement, so yeah. But that's John Frum. Hmm. And like I said, it's probably the most famous just because they do the ritualized marching and stuff, and like you can go on YouTube and find videos of them doing these things, and yeah, so it's just a very neat thing. On the other side of Tana, there is a tribe of people called the Yauhanan, and they believe that the son of a mountain spirit traveled across the sea and married a powerful woman who, and the spirit will one day return to them, using the power of this woman to then bring prosperity to the island. Well, in the 50s and 60s, this tribe, upon interacting with the re-established colonial officials and seeing their veneration for the newly coronated Queen Elizabeth II, believed that it must be her late husband, Prince Philip, 
who is the spirit who went across the sea and married mm. a powerful woman. Mm. Um, and so they began to venerate Prince Philip as such. Now, the royal couple was initially unaware of this um, and actually visited the islands in the nation of Anuatu in 1974, which validated the beliefs to some of these people because he did return and he brought with him the powerful woman and... Yeah, it's true. You know, all that stuff. Uh, and after this visit, it was eventually brought to the attention of Prince Philip by the head of the colonial officials in the island. And this official suggested that Philip should send a signed portrait of himself to this tribe. And he did. And in return, the Yauhanan sent the prince a traditional Nau Nau club, which is like a war club ceremonial type thing. And uh, so then Prince Philip took a picture of himself posing with the club and then sent it back oh, to them. Yes. Uh, That's kind of cute. Yeah. yeah it's really cute. You know, it's just, it, he was requested to do so by the people. He's like, you can you take a picture with this, please? <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, so it was very nice of him to do that. And so they still have all these photos. You know, they're very prized possessions. In 2007, a delegation from the tribe was brought to England as part of a reality TV show. And they actually got to meet the prince at Buckingham Palace. Oh my god. Um, and then in 2018, uh, his son, Prince Charles, visited Vanuatu and met with some of the leaders where he was bestowed the status of a ceremonial chief. And then, well, of course, Prince Philip passed away in 2021, and this caused his followers in Tana to go through a period of mourning, and they believe that his soul will now return to the island and be with them. Now, those who study this sort of thing, some theorize that their veneration of Prince Philip will now shift to his son, Prince Charles. But it also, you know, since it's so recently, we still don't know what's going to happen. Or, you know, they might just continue on venerating Prince Philip as a spirit, you know. Yeah, there's only one Prince Philip himself. You can't just replace him. Or so, I guess, no, it's his son. It's close it's enough. Complicated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Um, so yeah, pretty interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I did. We just did a whole episode on it, so I <laughs> think so at least. Yeah. <laughs> but to get to my point, uh, a lot of people find this phenomena incredibly interesting um, and unique um, to the fact. It's used in media, TV, films, uh, etc. But uh, I would argue that it's actually kind of developed into a sort of trope used in media. Like to explain, there was a movie in 1980 called "The Gods Must Be Crazy," 
and it's set in South Africa and it follows a Bushman who encounters a glass Coke bottle that is thrown out of an airplane. And he assumes that this is a gift from the gods. Mm. And the movie is a comedy. And so his villagers begin to argue over how to use this gift. And then there's arguments and very kind of slapstick comedy sort of deal. And so then he decides that he is going to try and return this gift to the gods. And so he has to go on this journey to return a glass Coke bottle to somebody. <laughs> and shenanigans happen. But uh, it actually, you know, kind of does a lot to point fun at civilization. You know, again, air quotes, you know, the absurdity of modern life, that sort of deal. Um, so, yeah, but like some other examples, you really start to see it develop in a trope in a sci-fi setting because the, the best way to recreate the phenomena of a cargo faith in a way that a lot of Western audiences would understand it is by using aliens as a Obviously, yeah. technologically advanced race suddenly interacting with us out of the blue, you know, and then yes. the possible miscommunications that can come from that interaction. There are a lot of movies like that. Yeah, and I mean, like... Star Trek Into Darkness. There's a scene where aliens begin worshipping the USS Enterprise after it rescues them, mm. going so far as like to draw images of it, similar to how Cargo Cult Veneration deal. Um, but yeah, like I said, aliens. And then uh, another place where the trope gets used a lot is in post-apocalypse settings. Because in that sense, it's not sufficiently advanced technology. It's just super old technology that people no longer know how to use. And again, the miscommunications that come from that. So an example of this would be the play Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. It's a very weird play. I read it for one of my classes. And the plot is that the apocalypse happens. And after a certain amount of time, these theater troops begin traveling across the post-apocalyptic wasteland doing episodes of The Simpsons from memory. What? <laughs> But of course, because like everybody knows The Simpsons, but individual people don't know every single line of every single character from The Simpsons. But it's like, you know, he says this line and I know he says this line and we can act it out and we can make The Simpsons. Well, this after it jumps forward in time of them doing these Simpsons plays. And, like, the final scene is, like, the Simpsons have begun 
become gods and like they're telling creation stories oh with God. the Simpsons and <laughs> they were real people, you know. Um, it's <laughs> very that. weird. But uh, so, yeah, it, that's why I think it's kind of like, like even with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, Thor and Loki are they're explained as like they're not magic they just have a sufficiently higher advanced technology that to us mere mortals it looks to be magic sort of deal right mm -hmm. but they're just aliens <laughs> really so yeah it's just kind of a interesting thing that the media has really attached onto this unique phenomena and then I don't know if exploit is the correct term, but they use it in an interesting way. Or even like in video games, there's there's like the Last of Us game on the PlayStation. Mm -hmm. And it's like Ellie and Joel walking through the post-apocalyptic world. And Ellie comes across like an old ice cream truck and she's like, I've heard about this before. It's It's like cold, isn't it? And they're like, well, yeah, and it's it's so far past the I guess normal world that Joel grew up in. He's like, well, obviously, yeah, you should know this. Yeah, and so yeah, that's just a interesting thing. But uh, before we end the episode, there's just one more thing that I found out that sort of relates to this, um, and I'm the host, so I get to decide what <laughs> relates to it. You know. But uh, it was very interesting little deal that I found while researching. But uh, the U.S. actually currently sends cargo to the South Pacific. Every year, the U.S. Air Force operates a training mission in Micronesia and Palau, where they drop hundreds of thousands of pounds of supplies off the shores of about 50-ish islands and this is done around christmas time and these crates contain things like fishing nets construction material food that sort of thing clothes school supplies and the program is called operation christmas drop <laughs> and it's been run annually since 1952 which makes it the longest-running humanitarian aid project run by the Department of Defense. It's also the longest-continuously-running airlift. And so and just, they made a movie about it in 2020, I guess, like a Hallmark rom-com sort oh, of deal. God. But But, you know, it, it is a very, like, we do send cargo, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. That's cute. That's so sweet that they do that though. Like they would I hope that they don't like get off the planes and like talk to them or anything. Just just let them No, they believe. they drop it off the islands. I yeah. mean, and I mean the people on the islands know what kind of like the, what the deal is. Uh the islands that they do it don't really have the John from presence or anything really. Oh, okay. But it's still nice. Yeah. And so that is the Phenomena of cargo cults. Wow. And so, hopefully, y'all learned something new. Uh, 
If you liked what you heard, please leave us a positive review or tell your friends about us. I put some sources in the show notes for anyone who wants to do some further research into this topic. For example, like there's a documentary on Amazon Prime called Waiting for John that really kind of delves into this topic. Um, I watched it to kind of study for this, um, and it's very well done. Our instrumental music is by Mountaineer. You can find their music and more on upbeat.io. As always, we want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on occupied land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, Comanche, Tonkwa, as well as other indigenous peoples. Have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at History Spelunkers. That's history, S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R-S, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with me. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye.